I'm Mark Peterson, and this is Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. Federal government-wide disaster planning dates to the Cold War era Federal Response Plan and similar documents that describe how the United States would respond to nuclear war and severe disasters. This singular plan was maintained and updated after the Cold War ended. However, following the attacks of September 11, 2001, it was deemed insufficient to meet the perceived requirement to ensure federal coordination for incidents too large for individual agencies or existing coordination structures to manage. In the years since, and at the direction of the president, doctrine and plans have been promulgated to establish an architecture for highly complex multi-agency events Part of this architecture are Federal Interagency Operation Plans, or FIOPS. In this episode, we explore the latest update to the Federal Response and Recovery FIOP and how it will guide federal agencies in their response and recovery mission areas and drive improved unity of effort, accomplishing one mission, supporting our citizens in times of need. So on this episode, we're going to get all into the details of the Federal Response and Recovery Federal Interagency Operation Plan, and I'm excited to talk about this with the co-leads for the development of the plan, Bob Roller uh, from FEMA's National Planning Branch in the Response Directorate at FEMA headquarters. Uh, Bob, thanks so much for joining me. Hi, Mark. This is my first podcast. I'm super excited. Excellent. And then uh, Kim Torbert, who is, uh, is the guidance development branch chief in FEMA's recovery directorate. So sort of like the uh, the other piece of this development puzzle for response and recovery. In the recovery directorate at FEMA headquarters, Kim, thanks so much for uh, joining me. Hey, Mark. Thanks for having me. Um, it's also my first time. So excited to be here with Bob and you. Great. And I'm excited for our audience to get a sense of how these plans are developed and, and really why they're important um, just for for the nation and uh, and how we support communities uh, across the country. But before we do that, I think we have to sort of set the stage. Let's talk about what a federal interagency plan is. So, Bob, why don't you kick us off with what that is? Thanks, Mark. So you said before we started the podcast that I have the opportunity to nerd out. And so this is my opportunity to like nerd out on emergency management history at the start of the podcast. So another thing I'm super excited about. And so... Federal planning for response and recovery has a long history. And so if you think of the the origins of FEMA and the emergency management community and how we kind of emerged from the civil defense days, one of the initial kind of major government kind of plans to guide how we would respond to both like the Cold War threats, but also natural disasters was the old federal response plan that existed in the Cold War days. And so that was on the shelf. It was a single document, existed for a long time, but it wasn't sufficient to meet the needs of the stakeholders across the country or the federal government in particular. And so after 9-11, the establishment of DHS and a number of presidential documents that helped provide additional guidance and structure for the emergency management community, as well as the federal government component of it, was first Homeland Security Presidential Directive 5 that had a number of deliverables in it, including one for a uh, national response plan. And so that was a single document that described how the federal government would respond and respond only to 
of all hazards in the post 9-11 environment. That plan was eventually retitled and rescoped to be the national response framework that exists today. But it wasn't enough. It didn't provide enough detail for all the emergency management stakeholders and definitely didn't address kind of the huge suite of things that we need to address as emergency managers. And so following HSPD-5 in 2003, as well as incidents including Hurricane Katrina in 2011, the administration at that time promulgated Presidential Policy Directive 8 that replaced the existing like national planning scenario doctrine that we had for a number of years with an emergency management structure that included all five mission areas, as well as frameworks, including but not limited to the national response framework, as well as tasking the development of plans at lower levels. And so for each framework, response, recovery, mitigation, prevention, preparedness, there's to be a corresponding FIOP and then hazard or threat specific incident annexes underneath that, and then individual federal department agency plans underneath that. So a whole kind of pyramid shape. And that was around for, you know, a, a decade or so. The problem was those five mission areas were often seen as silos. And so as somebody who spent, you know, close to 20 years in the response mission area, either as a wildland firefighter, paramedic, search and rescue planner, like I know this one slice of the of the mission pretty well and i know nothing about what anybody else does and that's a huge problem for me as a professional fema as an agency the federal government and the whole community and so about three and a half years ago fema leadership said hey we know from our real world experiences that it's just not enough to think of response as a silo and recovery as a silo. You do response and then you recover because that's not what the professionals in the field were telling anybody. And we understand that that's not how the real world operates. And so about three years ago, we got guidance from FEMA leadership is like, hey, we're gonna keep the frameworks, but we want a single consolidated federal interagency operational plan for both response and recovery. And that's what Kim and I were tasked to develop. And that's what we're talking about today. Mark, if I could add on to that, I think the other thing that's important to note too um, is that we have these hierarchy of plans. And so we have the framework and then we have the federal interagency uh, operational plan. From those plans, the um, goal is to have our states and our communities understand how the whole of nation works together, and that's laid out in the framework, how the federal government will then work to accomplish the mission under response and recovery, and that's in the um, file. But it also serves for the states and the communities to then develop their own plans that fall in line with it. So they serve as the basis to help the states and the communities understand what their roles and responsibilities are and what they need to do to make themselves sufficient or for them to support themselves during a disaster or, or an incident. Hey, so with the, with those other, um, those other FIOPs, the fi so with the total of five previously, did any of the others combine to make a joint FIOP or is it just response and recovery nope. did? So this is, is the first time. Yeah. So I'm, I'm just, 
obviously there's so much that we communicate with our partners out in the region uh, where I am, but uh, we always talk about response leading directly into recovery. And so um, maybe that's a great part to start talking about how the plan was developed um, when you started this process of um, sort of creating this one plan. What, what was the, the process for doing that? So I've been a planner for a long time and either doing the job or teaching planning, the way that I communicate this to folks is that planning is not a writing exercise. It's not like writing a novel where you have your first act, character development, rising, you know, action, resolution at the end. It's much more similar to the algebra that many of us struggled through as adolescents. It's a problem-solving process. You get your initial guidance. What is the problem? Then what are the tools that we have to solve the problem? What are the various ways that we could potentially select to solve the problem, get leadership approval, and then you wrap that up into a document that's called a plan. And so those are the big steps. And we have a number of guidance documents that we use that to map that out in, in greater detail. And so for folks that have worked in the community for a while, Comprehensive Preparedness Guide 101 is the six-step process that outlines that for our state and local partners. Within FEMA, we have uh, our uh, FEMA operational planning manual. It's almost identical with some small changes to who the approving authorities are, but these FEMA developed or maintained systems are almost identical to what partners in other places use. And so whether it's joint publication 5.0 that the military uses or the military decision-making process, you name it, like if you're familiar with planning, especially as a problem-solving process, the, the terminology and kind of the, the thought model is very similar, whether you're a project manager or you're <laughs> planning your family vacation, like the steps involved involve a level of detail that maybe folks aren't familiar with, but is intuitive once it's laid out on paper. And our approach to planning is is big tent. And so this was a federal government-wide planning effort. And so we invited absolutely everybody that could stand to be with us uh, in the same room or on the same Microsoft Teams meeting for three and a half years to, as we work through these steps. Because like, Tim and I are FEMA employees, but it's not the FEMA plan, right? It's the federal interagency plan. We're very good at facilitating, but it's not intended just for FEMA. And we definitely didn't want to have only a FEMA-specific uh, viewpoint on this, especially not a FEMA response space where I work. It was like we want to rec represent all the equities for all of our stakeholders. And so you know, we ticked off the planning effort for both the response side and the recovery side brought everybody together and then slowly and methodically worked through what is the problem we're trying to solve? What are the tools, the capabilities, the, the legal authorities, the facts, assumptions that we would want to work through as a team, get validation on that? Like, what are the potential ways that we could respond and recover to incidents, make a decision? That's the concept of operations. And then wrap that up into a into a document that we we call a plan. And then if I can add a, a couple more details here, I know what I know. I don't know what I don't know. Uh, I'm, I'm really good at the facilitation parts. I learned a whole lot about recovery, side seating with Kim and the recovery stakeholders that were really good to be like, hey, time out. There's a recovery consideration here. It's like, oh, my like, head explodes. It's fantastic. I had no idea. They're like, yes, absolutely. Thank you for telling me this. I'm, I'm now smarter than I was five minutes ago. And in addition to that, that work that we did with everybody for the first probably year and a half of this effort, 
we took a solid year and broke out functional annexes that were developed by subject matter experts from across the federal government because the big group was really good at kind of the big overarching things. But when it came to intelligence and situational awareness or public affairs or logistics or communications technology, like we set up concurrent annex development groups of subject matter experts from across the federal government. They spent a solid year developing the functional annexes that we linked up to the base plan towards the end of our plan approval process. And so this big tent multi-year effort with all the response recovery stakeholders from across the federal government, and then the SMEs doing the technical piece sandwiched together in a, in a federal plan, and then we'll send it forward for publication. So I'm obviously not a planner, um, but I, I certainly consume plans, um, you know, here it, it, within my work at FEMA. And a lot of times they're very specific, hazard specific, you know, ha uh, earthquake, uh, power outage, you know, those types of, you know, hazard specific. How do you start with a problem set uh, to help you define a plan? What is that problem set? I mean, maybe Kim, uh, just because I'm curious how you develop a problem set that you know, can also bring in the recovery and, and response at the same time? So I think, I think um, th that's a great question. And I think one of the things that we had to start off with was what is the FIOP and what is it not? Um, because a lot of people think of it as a plan and they think that it should be a tactical level plan and it should be able to, someone should be able to pick it up and say, I'm going to do this, 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 and this, and this in order to um, um, meet the, the mission set that's presented by the disaster or the, or the um, event. And really, um, we had to all get on the same page and agree that it was not a tactical level document and it was not meant for someone to pick up the uh, pick up and say, these are all the various steps we're going to take. And uh, Bob, I saw your eyes get really big, but hopefully I, I wasn't misspeaking, but it's really at the operational level and it's really for the federal government to really lay out how we would all work together to bring resources to bear on the problem set, right? And um, and so I think that was really important. And when you, when you think about what is the problem set. I mean, when you think about this is for all disasters, like, wow, what does that mean? Are you responding to every disaster in the same exact manner? No, but what it allowed us to do was put together this operational plan that was scalable and could meet multiple disaster needs, right? And it really talks about, the, this plan really talks about how the federal government will coordinate and work together to respond to and recover and help communities recover from a disaster. Um, Bob, Bob may have more on this, but it's really not at that tactical, we're going to do this, 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 and this. It's an overarching how we're going to coordinate operationally. Yeah, Kim's exactly right. And so the FIOP is a all hazards, kind of all problem set plan for response and recovery. And so when it came to like, we didn't develop specific scenarios because we know from the old system, the, the national planning scenarios day that having a 300 page plan specific to one very specific scenario doesn't really work with the real world. But the FIOP provides guidance that federal stakeholders, as well as our state, local, tribal, and territorial partners, the one examples or just want to know what the feds think we're going to do, like, hey, this is how we're going to structure response and recovery. It's not phase one, prepare to respond, phase two, respond, phase three, recovery. It's like, no, 
like integrated response and recovery from the outset. That's how we're going to do it. Here's what a unified coordination group looks like. Here's some of the roles and responsibilities of our federal interagency partners. Here's our logistics concept of operation. Here's how IPAWS and other things work. And so it sets that kind of big picture understanding. So we're all working off the same sheet of music so that either when folks are doing their individual hazard and threat specific plans or something happens and you just need information about what capabilities are out there or how the federal government operates, you can pull this this plan and use it for a kind of a hazard or threat specific problem that's sitting in your lap in a very timely manner. You know, the other thing I think is important to mention, too, is because because the the base plan, the FOB base plan itself is not directed towards any specific hazard. The plan does have incident annexes and those and there are very specific incident annexes that do delve into some really critical areas like RADNUC or, or um, the, those types of situations. And so I think that's an important point to, to talk about, because while that base plan is an overarching, there are specific disasters where we have different um, federal organizations or federal agencies that have specific requirements and what they do. And that brings that really brings to light in those incident annexes. Uh, so that base plan or, um, you know, before we get into the annexes uh, that might be out there, uh, if I were a state emergency manager and I were taking this FIOP and then sort of lending itself to developing other plans uh, within my state, you know, what are the, the basic elements of the plan that have been developed. I'm assuming command is the command structure is one of them, right? Good question. So coordination structure. And so the, the elevator speech that I give folks here at FEMA, literally in the elevator is like, Hey, can I tell you about the FIOP? The first, when you look at the phasing construct within the plan, both in the base plan uh, and in the task organization annex, what used to be phase one, you know, prepare to respond phase two respond phase three recovery, which didn't match with how our stakeholders are telling us that the real world actually operated. It's no phase two integrated response recovery operations that, that from the initial actions that take place in phase two, when something happens from the earliest moments, you need to have recovery equities like present and recovery stakeholders working on their piece so that it's not a kind of siloed approach that we understand that things we knew in initial response should reinforce the long-term recovery outcomes we want, even though we know that that phase two to phase three transition will occur where the response stuff uh, is addressed or lifelines are stabilized and you move into that longer term recovery piece. The other aspect is we've gone away, like the all hazards con model has essentially become all hazards all the time. And so we put a lot of information in there regarding unified coordination groups and unified coordination writ large. Because there's a lot of confusion. I think folks that live in the ICS world understand the differences between unity of command, unified command, uh, unity of effort. Like we understand those terms, but if you don't live in the ICS world all the time, it can be confusing. And so we took definitions that existed elsewhere, provided some clarifying context, and then provided a lot of information in particular regarding unified coordination and the responsibilities of a lead federal agency pursuant to Presidential Policy Directive 44, which is a more recent presidential guidance document that also provides guidance for how the federal government, not necessarily FEMA all the time, is going to respond and recover to particular incidents. Kim, um, all that sounds like really good information, especially as you are dealing with the onset of an, uh, of an event. And it's uh, obviously very important to have recovery there, but we all know that recovery can take a pretty long time. So how do we account for the length of time 
for recovery, you know, as it begins to, we, the shift uh, starts to occur towards that longer term approach? So that's a really interesting question. And and recovery can sometimes take a very long time to to accomplish, right? What that what those end goals, that end strategy is. But being there when the disaster happens and when our response um, partners are on the ground as well enables us to see, you know, right at the onset what what um damage or what consequences have occurred as a result of the incident, right? Or as a result of the disaster. And it allows us the federal government to see what's going on, what are those short-term um, goals in order to like stabilize the various lifelines, make sure people are, are put in temporary housing. We can construct our um, we can uh, utilities get the get the uh, electricity back up and running. So from a recovery perspective, if you can see those things and you know what's going on, then you can start to forge a plan for how we're going to. Uh, affect the recovery. And we have like different stages of recovery, right? We have we have initial recovery, we have the intermediate recovery, and then we have long-term recovery, right? So what are those things that we could do immediately to start getting people back to where they were and then realizing how we can build back, um, you know, enhance where we where we were before the incident occurred in some cases. But if we wait until response is all finished, that may be one week, depending on the size of the incident, it may be a month, it may be two months, right? Then I think we lose critical time to be able to identify resources necessary to bring to bear on the on the on the uh, on the incident. And part of that, like we talk about, we talk about uh, resources. We have grants that are available through IA and PA. But if those if if people aren't able to apply for those grants because the situation doesn't warrant it, then what other resources is the federal government going to bring to the table at the request of our SLTT partners? right because we would never do that unless we were requested to assist but what are the resources do we need to start looking at putting in place requesting our other federal partners to come into play right so if they're not if they're not requested they're not mission assigned they're not going to be there but we have to be there at the beginning to see how we can coordinate with our um, emergency support functions and our recovery support functions who sometimes are one and the same people I mean, that's a that's a really good point. And actually, one of the places I've been thinking about um, is that, well, OK, so there might be a situation where the uh, the limits of our programs that might be available in an event um, are exceeded. Right. So mm -hmm. uh, maybe a particular project doesn't work for public assistance. So maybe it's available. It might be um, another agency that could come in. Does the plan lend any support for situations where there is no Stafford Act declaration? Yeah, really good question. And so we had a large interagency stakeholder group. And one of the points that they told us from the outset is like, hey, we need to make this combined response recovery FIOP less Stafford Act centric because our partners also are beholden to the guidance in DBD8, they're responding to things all the time. Their stakeholders, they need this too. And so, for example, our Department of Interior stakeholders made sure that we included tribal considerations in our unified coordination group. We cut a lot of the Stafford-specific language out of the document and roughly 470 pages of text that was all about Stafford-related stuff and so on to really focus in on like, hey, this is how the federal government is going to do response and recovery, not necessarily Stafford Act. So, for example, like 
ESFs and RSFs can be activated without a Stafford Act declaration. They just don't have the the funding that would would come with that. Like the NRF is always in effect. You know the, the structures and processes that we outlined here. A lot of them can be used even by other lead federal agencies if they're tasked by the president or through another mechanism to lead the response to you know, a particular incident within their own kind of statutory authorities. Like that was one of their earliest and most often points made is like, hey, everybody, time out. We need to make this like less FEMA Stafford Act centric. I'm really pleased that we have that because our stakeholders outside of <laughs> FEMA can use it and find more utility from it. Yeah, I also think it's important to note, too, that one of the reasons we had to really go down that route is because the world as we know it in disasters has changed drastically. Um, and we needed to make sure that we kept up with that, with those changes, right? And so as we're seeing different types of disasters that may not be Stafford Act disasters, how are we, the federal government, leveraging our resources to help when asked our SLTT partners in our communities? The other thing is, is as we look at the disaster landscape, we're seeing more frequent disasters. We're seeing different types of disasters. I mean, COVID was the first uh, nation and really worldwide pandemic that we had we had experienced. And then also we're seeing multiple disasters at one time. So without a, a really um, uh, comprehensive and joint plan, it would be very difficult to continue to have resources to support our SLTT partners and our communities respond to and recover from a disaster. And those things are are not just about the disaster itself, but how climate has shaped the disaster faces and how you know diversity and equity are changing the face of disasters. We within FEMA are really taking a hard look at response and recovery the makeup of the communities to which we serve. How do we come in and take a take a, a consolidated and um, coordinated approach to make sure that those underserved communities have what they need? Because when we talk about a huge disaster, the type of a Katrina, you see what that disaster did to a, a major a major city, a major location, right? But when you take a smaller disaster that affects a rural community or an underserved community, the effects could be quite similar as far as economics go and as as far as displacement goes, even though it may be a smaller scale, we had to start looking at it from a climate perspective and from a diversity and equity and underserved community perspective. And that 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 was part of the iterative process that we engaged in when we developed this FIOP. Are there particular ways that come to mind of how that's represented in the FIOP? Equity specifically? Yeah, I think we 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 did take a concerted effort to look at making sure that we specifically called out in the fire that we have to look at our communities that we're serving. Mm -hmm. um, and we had to make sure that we were cognizant, you know, of the makeup of that community. And I do believe that there's actually points in there that talk about that smaller disasters affect small communities differently than they would affect larger metropolitan areas. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I, w one of the things we talked about earlier was bringing in um, a, a number of different uh, federal agencies to help develop the plan. Um, how many agencies partook in the the planning process? And you know, were there any that uh, maybe throughout the iterative process you realized you needed to bring in additional, uh, you know, agencies to the to the planning effort? We had 28 federal agencies that participated actively in the development over this for the three and a half years. 
probably 200 individual stakeholders. And then just in the last probably two years of development, uh, we had 50 meetings and 1,500 separate comments that came in from folks as we went through the various plan development and plan review steps in our in our planning process. And throughout, like as we work through, there'd be a question we didn't have the answer to. And oftentimes one of our stakeholders would do the reach back through their own agency, like, hey, I know somebody, they can give us the answer on this. And then we added a new stakeholder. We got somebody else who's smart around the table because one of the things that I've learned is like part of the planning space is like, hey, everybody, what do we want to do? And you kind of work through that that malleable part of the plan. But oftentimes there are specific questions that folks have that an authoritative person or office can answer. It's like you got a medical question, let's ask a doctor. You got a legal question, let's ask a lawyer, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And so just bringing the smart people to the room not only allowed us to have like more accurate content, but it also ensured that we had like the buy-in from folks necessary to keep moving forward. So like, hey, smart person, you've got the answers. Why don't you come to our party and we'll <laughs> we'll add another seat and we'll keep rolling. As I mentioned before, like I live in the response area. Like I get super jazzed about this stuff, like a response person and tactical pants, like go, go, go all the time. But having the opportunity not just to side seat with Kim on this planning effort, but to bring the recovery stakeholders into a space that They've never sat around my table before and us having to brief recovery leadership, like there's a whole new group of people and a whole new mindset that is brand new to me and a lot of the folks on my side of the table. It's like to bring the response people and the recovery people into the same room to work through things together. Like not only did we do great things, but now we have these working relationships with folks that we never, I, I didn't know any of these folks before. And now they're all like strong colleagues that I can ask questions and we can work on stuff together. It's fantastic. Two points I'll make to that. One is, is that there's a realization that recovery recovery takes time and it takes money, right? Response comes in and it's, you know, on the par of recovery, it's quick. Response is quick. Anyone that's been involved in, in responses to um, incidents or disasters knows that it's, that's quick. You get in there, you stabilize things, um, and then you move on to whatever that next incident is. And recovery does take a long time, right? And there's a lot of thought that has to go into it. If we're building it back, how is it going to affect the long-term econ- economy? How is it going to affect, you know, the building codes? How do they affect things when we build back? And are we taking those things into consideration? And if we build back in the same area that was just affected by a disaster or flood, for say, how how quickly are we going to have to come back and rebuild that again? So there's a lot that goes into it that if you start thinking at it from a holistic approach, you kind of start to see like, wow, how do I then bring resources to the table for a response that's going to help benefit recovery? You know, the other thing I think is quite interesting is, is that this isn't a one and done process. And what I mean by that is the people that we brought to the table don't just work on the buyout. They work on the national response framework. They work, work on the national um, disaster recovery framework. So these, this is a community of people now that has come together to develop this joint buyout, if you will, for response and recovery. And once your mind expands, it can't go back. Bob's never going to think of response the same way now that he now that he's embedded as part of the recovery group. Sorry, Bob, if you didn't know, you Very are true. now part of the recovery yep. group. You Absolutely can't think true. of things the same way. And so when you look at our SLTT partners, when they look at it from that perspective, they should start to think about their plans. And they shouldn't just think about their response plans. They should start thinking about their recovery plans, the mitigation plans, and the resilience plans. Right, right now, we don't have a requirement for, for recovery plans. 
But just because there is an requirement doesn't mean it's not necessary. And we prove that and we show that really in this joint FIOP, that we have to think long term. How do we get back to, um, you know, helping communities recover from and becoming better? Right. We don't want to we don't want to put them where they were because where they were got them in the situation they were right that they're in after a disaster. So how do we make them become more effective and mitigate things in the future? And that really sets the stage, I believe, in this response and recovery file. I, I love that. I love that there's a challenge there, I think, for SLTT uh, partners uh, and also for the federal government to just continue to to think more broadly um, and, you know, in that same vein, and I think Bob kind of alluded to this a little bit earlier on in the conversation, but, you know, as we, as we look to kind of close out this conversation, what, what were some of the aha moments that stick out to you in the process? And maybe what are some surprises that just sort of came to you, um, throughout the iteration? I don't have like one specific example. It's like a da- it's like a daily thing. And so, Kim, as well as the recovery stakeholders, like, you know, I kind of get on this train like, hey, we're uh, facts, assumptions, critical considerations. What's our uh, course of action steps? And just kind of work through this this process that I've done for a long time. And just to have folks be like, hey, Bob, time out. Here is something that you had not yet thought about. Like, oh, you're absolutely right. Thank you so much. And then it's like four or five times a meeting to have folks with a ton of expertise and a very different perspective on similar issues like hey like that's great but that's just a recovery thing it's oh yeah i mean these these kind of aha moments like oh absolutely but there are things i wouldn't have thought about until i had an opportunity to sit at a table with recovery stakeholders to work on this stuff and so that was like the absolute highlight of this whole effort years-long thing is just being able to work through a process that i'm very familiar with but with a group of stakeholders i had never previously worked with And I think for me, the aha moment was in the end, we were all there for the same purpose, even though we didn't realize it, right? Because we had all worked so separately for so long. But in the end, the purpose was to make sure that the federal government could um, come together and support our SLTTs, uh, SLTT and our communities that have been affected by a disaster and help them to respond and recover from. I mean, that was the ultimate goal. And I think this process really put all of the people in the room that hadn't necessarily been in the room together before, but we were all working towards the same goal in the end. So are there next steps for the FIOP? Oh, yeah, we never stop. <laughs> and so within that PPD-8 architecture, the frameworks to the joint response and recovery FIOP. There are the hazard and threat specific annexes, and there's a number of those that already exist that we have had for a number of years. The food ag incident annex, space weather con ops, oil chem, and we are updating those annexes to represent the concepts in the FIOP. And so the revised biological incident annex that has all of the post COVID things we've learned, also reflecting the FIOP concepts, as well as the new grad incident annex. But you know, the point that I've made you know, a number of times during this podcast is that it's not just, oh, we're going to add some new detail to align it with the higher headquarters guidance. It's like, no, Kim and her stakeholders are going to be in the meeting as we're talking about the response and recovery to radiological incidents or biological incidents. And we're going to route the document through the leadership chains on either side so that the recovery leadership also get to see what the response folks are doing so that we're all on the same sheet of music. So it's not just, hey, we did the FIOP and we're done. It's we had the FIOP. We all came together as 
as Kim mentioned, and we're going to continue working on things together so that the, the documents and the, the way that we respond and recover in the future remains coordinated. Thanks for listening to this episode of Before, During, and After, a podcast from FEMA. If you'd like to learn more about this episode or other topics, or have ideas for future episodes, visit us at fema.gov podcast. Thank you.